Welcome market participants to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. We really don't want to make this all about Russia, but there are so many layers to this particular shock. And for guidance on these issues, I have leaned extensively on Joan Feldbaum Vidra, KBRA's Head of Sovereign Credit. You can find her and her team's work, including the latest comments on Russia and Ukraine, on our website, kbra.com. This week, our three things are, one, geopolitical shocks and credit. At what point do geopolitical events impact markets? Two, China. Can it play a positive role in the Russian-Ukraine situation? And three, Russia facing another possible default. What's the risk of contagion? All right, let's dig a bit deeper. Geopolitical shocks and credit. You've all been consumed with the Russian invasion. How could you not be? The most important test of the global world order since World War II and the first war watched widely on social media. It's also a war where few, if any, of the scenarios of how this might progress leave much room for hope. A phone conversation with French President Macron Thursday confirmed that Russia has no intention of backing down from its goal of taking control of all of Ukraine. A French official said to expect the worst is to come. And while European and U.S. stocks did sell off on the chilling update, as well as today, following a number of disturbing headlines and developments overnight, we are settling in, and that's probably the wrong word, to a pattern of market chop, volatility and has made us think about the nature of geopolitical risks and its impact on risk markets. Historically speaking, geopolitical events typically do not reset markets. The most significant event of the past 50 years, the 9-11 terrorist attacks, saw the S&P 500 sell off 12% before recovering that lost value in just 15 days. Here, the S&P is up just over 2% since the invasion began, while European stocks, as measured by the stocks Europe 600, are off 6%. U.S. high-yield credit spreads are tighter, while European high-yield spreads are 50 basis points wider. So it's a mixed bag. And honestly, inflation reporting is playing a significant role in market moves. It's really a reminder that, regardless of how shocking an event could be to our collective sensibilities, risk markets are more clinical focusing on material changes to economic growth. That drives earnings, employment, and asset values. Put another way, risk markets react, really, to changes in recession probabilities. Now, in this case, we do worry about the prospects of lower growth and higher inflation resulting from a supply shock and a demand shock related to the invasion. The supply shock is the impact to Russia's and Ukraine's commodity superstore that is a meaningful supplier of the world's oil and gas, wheat, fertilizer, and specialty metals. That will worsen a story we're all painfully familiar of, supply chain disruption. The demand shock will come from the energy shock, where oil is traded over $120 a barrel and where real demand destruction really starts to happen around $130 a barrel. So it would make sense that we will have modestly lower economic growth and higher inflation as a result of this. Now, there are some offsets to all of this negative impact. 
We're likely to get a more measured approach from central banks as they tighten financial conditions. And we could get stimulus in Europe related to two things. One, humanitarian aid to the building refugee crisis. And two, the rearming of the German military. So that is what markets are reacting to. And by the way, no one wants to think about those tail events. All right, on to our second thing. China's role in Putin's war and the new world order. Now, many of us recall that photo op at the Beijing Olympics a few weeks ago with Putin and Xi Jinping opening the games and declaring that the friendship between their countries had, quote, no limits, unquote. This, while many countries, including the U.S., the U.K., and India, opted for a diplomatic boycott. Now, we believe a key part of Putin's grand plan, 20 years in the making, to reconstitute the Russian Empire is pivoting economically to Asia. This would become necessary knowing that the West would sanction in response to a Ukrainian invasion. China could provide cover and demand for Russia's fossil fuel exports. Clearly, Putin's war is not going well, having badly underestimated, underestimated Ukraine's determination and the West's outrage. Putin's miscalculation cannot be helpful to China as it seeks to solidify its role in the new world order and its own plans to expand its sphere of influence. So maybe, just maybe, China can become an important piece of how this catastrophe, this tragedy, gets solved. Earlier this week, the FT was reporting that Chinese foreign minister had a phone conversation with his Ukrainian counterpart, leading to a statement by Beijing that it looks forward to playing a role in realizing a ceasefire. Reading public opinion and widespread condemnation of Putin's war, this represented a pronounced change in reaction from Beijing, which had abstained on a United Nations resolution condemning Russia's invasion. China's calculation will be its assessment of what serves its imperial ambitions better, playing ball with the international community or supporting Russia. Is being an adversary to the West the most expedient way to achieve the financial stature that she seeks? Not certain, but we do think China can play a role here in turning the tide. All right, on to our third thing, Russian default 2.0. For those of us of a certain vintage, talk of a Russian default takes us uncomfortably back to 1998 when the Russian financial crisis morphed into the LTCM crisis. This was a case of classic financial contagion where a triggering event created a loss of investor confidence that then exposed dangerous leverage throughout the financial system, ultimately leading to massive losses requiring substantial taxpayer bailout. Now, put more simply, dominoes toppling one after another in search of a breakpoint. With Russia on the brink of default today, is there a risk of contagion? To answer that question, you have to revisit 1998, where Joan recalls Russia was struggling with a chronically high fiscal deficit stemming from declining productivity, falling commodity prices, and the cost of its war in Chechnya. She also mentions that the difficulties Russia had in borrowing from its internal market, which then fostered an over-reliance on external markets and were symptoms of the weakness of the fledgling state, something that's never good in terms of default probability. In August of that year, the government devalued the ruble, defaulted on its domestic debt, and declared a moratorium on repayment of foreign debt. 
And that drove spreads of emerging market debt considerably wider, causing massive losses throughout the global financial system. The event dealt significant blows to the likes of Bankers Trust, Lehman Brothers, UBS, and of course, LTCM, the high-flying hedge fund aspirationally named Long-Term Capital Management. So back to the reason for our history lesson. Are we looking at Russian financial crisis 2.0? In terms of financial contagion, the answer we believe is no. What ultimately caused the financial crisis of 1998 was a loss of confidence in a large amount of high-quality assets, sovereign debt, that was widely held at the time throughout the highly levered global financial system. In contrast, this is a highly idiosyncratic story today. The collapse of the Russian financial system is because of Russia's own actions and the sanctions imposed on it as a result. Yes, there will likely be stories of a highly levered investor or two that fails as a result of its exposure to Russia, but it will not be widespread in large part because Russia does not have that much debt outstanding relative to the global investor base. There will not be the kind of forced selling which topples more investor or financial intermediary dominoes. There simply is not material, dangerous exposure in large global banks. And those banks, by the way, are far better capitalized today than they were back in the late 1990s. Foreigners held just $20 billion of Russia's dollar-denominated debt and $41 billion of its ruble-denominated bonds at the end of 2021, according to data supplied by the Central Bank of Russia. Federal Reserve Chair Powell recently said that the U.S. financial system has very little exposure to Russia. So investors have much to be concerned about in this latest Russian crisis, but financial contagion is well down that list. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, geopolitical shocks and credit. Markets tend to shrug them off until they affect economic growth materially. Two, China. It can be a force for good in the outcome of the Russia-Ukrainian conflict. And three, Russia facing another possible default. We think contagion risk is low. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest research, including Jones and other colleagues' insightful perspectives on the impact of the Russian-Ukrainian conflict and credit. See you all next week.